0: Let's open God's Word this morning to Psalm 68, Psalm 68 and we'll read the entirety of the Psalm but our focus will be on just a sliver of the Psalm verses 15 through 20, Psalm 68 verses 15 through 20, we'll be reading the entirety together. Psalm 68 is given the title of, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Hear now the word of the Lord. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee. They flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the shepherds. The wings of a dove covered with silver. Its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God and the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain." There's Benjamin, the least of them in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun. The princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. As I mentioned, our text be verses 15 through twenty. And we'll work through those verses this morning. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure that many of us have tried to imagine what it will be like when we hear that trumpet and we join that procession, that parade, that march into the new Jerusalem. You ever tried to wonder, though, what the imaginations are thinking about of those souls of the believers who have gone before us into heaven? What they're thinking and anticipating about the day that they will join us on that march? How are they going to experience that? Their souls are already in heaven. They've had a taste of glory. They're with Jesus today, but they also know, as we do, that they have not yet fully experienced the fullness of Christ's kingdom. Whether on on earth or in heaven, the saints are still waiting, still hoping, still looking, and still not fully aware of what that day will be like. And So I was thinking about this, and I was wondering, you know, what would that be like if, if the Lord calls us We start along that road if he comes before we pass away. So all we know is this life, this earth. We have a foretaste, of course, but our souls have not yet yet been to glory. And so we're starting that march, and along comes beside us one of those believers who has been to glory. Their soul has been there, and now they join us on that march. We look at each other and we say, you're my brother, you're my sister. I always imagined what this day would be like, but this is so much better. And that believer whose soul has been to glory grabs our hand and says, let's walk together to Christ. Let's walk through the gates of New Jerusalem together. One comes from the perspective of heaven, one comes from the perspective of earth, but both now are seeing for the first time the new heavens and the new earth. Of course, it's not just what we'll be able to see. Think of also what we'll be able to hear. The songs we'll be singing alongside that massive throng of people all entering the city together through those gates. Or even just to talk to the people nearby us. People we've never met before, but we're discovering how close we are as a family. I mean, think if you find out if that person walking beside you is one of the midwives from Egypt. Wouldn't that be incredible? Or one of those baby boys who was murdered by Pharaoh. Maybe it's a soldier in David's army. One of those exiles who, when they were young, saw the first temple destroyed, and then when they were old, they got to come back and see the second temple rebuilt. And now for the first time, they get to see the heavenly temple. The more you start thinking about that and you let your imagination go and just what that experience would be like to march on our way to the new Jerusalem, the more exciting it gets to look for that day. Psalm 68 helps us build that excitement. It, it bolsters, you could say, our imagination. It sets, sets our minds on the right path. What should we expect? What are we really longing for? Is God's covenant people for that beautiful march up the mountain of God. Because what Psalm 68 does is it tells us basically two things. The first is that the Lord is supreme in victory and in righteousness. And we will see that. And the second thing it tells us is look at all those who are on that march. Look at the ones who are joining us there as we follow Jesus into that glory. This is a psalm that anticipates the ascension of Christ into heaven, first of all. But then it looks beyond his ascension to the day of when that first fruits will come back. And we will see the even greater entrance when Jesus takes us with him to our new and eternal home. So let's follow Jesus in Psalm 68. As we see the king ascending to his mountain. So we'll look at verses 15 through 20 and three parts first the lord's dwelling second the captives march and third the god of salvation the king ascends to his mountain in verse 15 we read o mountain of god mountain of bashan o many peach mountain mountain of bashan what's bashan probably heard that word before bashan was a region on the east side of the jordan river so it was outside of the promised land It was in the northern part of that section that the Israelites conquered before they crossed the Jordan River. It was a fruitful land, a beautiful land, so much so that it actually became part of the inheritance for Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh. Even though it was outside of the land that the Lord had pledged to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and they asked the Lord if they could settle there. Bashan was very impressive hills, mountains, which also made it a place of incredible military power. It was a fortress, and that's why Israel's conquering of Og, king of Bashan, which is mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament, including in the Psalms, that's why it was such a big deal. If you wanted to establish a powerful kingdom, Bashan was a good place to start, because it was not just one mountain, but as verse 15 says, it was a many-peaked mountain. And yet we know that when it came to the inheritance of Israel, God's dwelling place, he did not set his home in Bashan. He set it in Jerusalem. His mountain was Zion. Now if you geographically look at the two and compare them, Bashan and Zion, you You would look at the two and say, Zion's barely a mountain, if you can even call it that. It's a bump coming up out of the middle of a plain. It's generous to call it a hill compared to Bashan. And so you think strategically, if I wanted to establish a kingdom, why would I choose Zion when I already possess Bashan? Why wouldn't I set my throne in the most defensible, glorious place to do so? Zion is not all that impressive. The sad thing is that throughout the Old Testament, God's covenant people often made that mistake. Because they looked at the nations and their fortresses, their mountains, their prosperity, the strength of their armies, the size and riches of their economies, their mountains. I said, if only we could have that. They saw the rituals and the ceremonies and the, the feasts that those idol worshipers could have. The freedoms that they claimed to enjoy. The life that they said they got to prosper in. To live in such impressive places. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the great nations of the world. Israel looked at them and said, we want to be like them. We want to align ourselves with them. Look at us. We, we can be impressive too. And yet the reality is, every time that Israel wanted to be like the nations, they became less impressive, less prosperous, and less faithful. To the point that at times the nations around them would laugh at them. You Israelites, you sing about the greatness of Zion. It's a bump. The greatness of Zion's God. Look at you. And so Israel, sadly, was often envious of the nations. That's not what Psalm 68 says. Look at verse 16. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, Bashan, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The verse is flipping things around. Bashan is the many-peaked mountain that is impressive, and yet it is envious of Zion. Why? Why would Bashan be hateful? of Zion's prestige, Zion's greatness. It can't be that Jerusalem's greater. It wasn't. Jerusalem is more defensible. It wasn't. Zion's greatness could not be measured by earthly prowess or statistics. It's measured by the desire of God. That's what verse 16 says. The mount that God desired for his abode. Now, why would God have desired Zion? Beautiful gardens, opulent palaces, impressive boulevards, tremendous bulwarks. No, that's never what made Zion impressive. It has everything to do where God has chosen to place his name, his abode, it says, his home. You think about that, normally the great kings of the nations would build their homes, their abodes, far above and far away from the common folk, from the riffraff. The king did not want to settle amongst the normal people. He knew he was special. And so he wanted his home to reflect that. His uniqueness, his majesty, his power, his finances, his glory. And so if you wanted to go see the king, you had to go up to his house And the only ones who are allowed to visit with him and have an audience with him are those who are also great and powerful and glorious and majestic. People who are of the nobility, people you'd build monuments for. But that's not what the Lord did. Here's one of the paradoxes of God's glory. Where our expectations don't meet reality. Where is the Lord's abode? Well, actually, the psalm tells us. If you go back to verses 5 and 6 in Psalm 68, this is what, where God is known to dwell. Verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Is that where a king is expected to live? To have his habitation, his abode among the fatherless, orphans, widows, the lonely, the solitary, prisoners. I mean, in those days, orphans and widows were ignored. They were taken advantage of. They were often enslaved. They were low class. They were insignificant. They were unworthy of the time and effort of the greatest kings. But that's not what the Lord says. Of all of the people who could be listed in this psalm as those who are granted free access and audience to this king and his glory, it's the fatherless, the widow, the solitary, the prisoner that God says, I will use to display my majesty. You realize that that's what God is saying about us, right? What did we hear from our assurance of pardon? Not many wise. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in the world to put the shame to shame the wise, the weak to put shame to shame the strong. That's how God has always built His kingdom. So for those of us among us who are widows or those who are counted as small or insignificant, who the world looks at and says, you're not worth much to me. Who in the world's eyes have so little to offer. The work of God, the grace of God is far greater than the greatest power and the greatest achievements of the greatest empires in the history of the world. The glory of the work of the Holy Spirit that He does among us this morning is that you and I can look at each other and say that is the glory of God working in His kingdom. That is evidence of the greatest majesty we have ever seen. The love of God who saves sinners. This is highlighted even in verse 11 as well. It comes after several verses recalling how God provided rain for His people in the wilderness, a region that was not known for its fruitfulness, its abundance of water for rain. And yet God powerfully provides His goodness, as verse 10 says, for the needy. And then look at what comes next. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. You see that? Who is the great host of the Lord? The great army of the Lord? David's mighty men. No. The chariots of Sennacherib of Assyria. No. The women of Israel are great, impressive, powerful in the Lord. They are the ones on the battlefield proclaiming the glorious word of God as they see the power of Christ through his Holy Spirit descend upon the earth and establish the kingdom of God so much so that as they stand there ready for battle, they look across the battlefield and what do they see? The enemy's turning tail, afraid. Like you read about in the book of Revelation, at the announcement of Christ's coming, the kings of the nations call to the mountains, fall on us, bury us, so that we don't have to see the victory of Christ. And here are these women, like Miriam, leading the the women in song and dance and celebration as Pharaoh and his chariots are drowned in the Red Sea. Or you think of when David and Saul would come back from fighting against the Philistines and the women are lining the streets and singing about Saul is slain as thousands and David is tens of thousands. What's interesting, the way that Psalm 68 describes them is they're not spectators looking at the army, looking at the great host. They're not bystanders while someone else gains the victory. They are the great host. That's where God displays his strength as much as any king of the nations would parade his choice and finest soldiers to prove his power. And if that's not enough, verse 12, the king of the armies flee, they flee, the women at home divide the spoil. Normally it's the men. They go over the battlefield They pick up all the precious jewels or weapons that they want, everything that that is worth something, and then they carry that home to their wives. But that's not what it says. The women who stayed at home, not a soldier at all in the expected way of carrying a sword, the homemaker is on the battlefield taking her spoils. She has just as much credit for the victory as anyone else. So I ask you again, when compared to Bashan, does this kingdom look anything like the kingdoms of the world? What kind of a king rules over this kingdom? He dwells among an an unimpressive people, on an unimpressive hill. He cares for insignificant needs, and he enlists into his army homemakers and women who sing. And he is not at all ashamed of that. He rejoices in that. That's his kingdom. That's his church and his incredible work to gather a people to himself, a grace through faith in the Messiah. This company, this great host made strong in the Spirit and resolutely walking in victory toward the consummation of God's saving work in all of history. We see his glory that is unmatched by any kingdom in history. You think of the vision. The stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that after you see that statue of all the nations of the world, that stone that rolls down the mountain and smashes it apart and then grows to fill the earth. That's the mountain of the Lord where the Lord has made his home. And if that's the kingdom, that's what makes verses then 17 and 18 exciting. Because now we get to watch the fruits of that battle. What what happens at the end? We get to watch his march into his home. So We see that in the second place, the captive's march. At that time when a king returned victorious from a battlefield, before he entered his capital city, he would spend some time out in, the, out in the plain regions making sure that his whole army and all of its regiments are set in order. Each company, each battalion with its insignia, with its banners, its, its, all of its, its weapons shined brilliantly. And then they would have a parade. And they would carry the spoils of the enemy up into the city to display the magnificence of his victory. We get a picture of that parade beginning in verse 17. Verse 17. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. If you know your Bibles, though, you would realize that there's something strange about verse 17. Why is it talking about chariots? Israel was not supposed to have a huge cavalry or lots of chariots. God even told them, do not build up your army the way that the nations do with their armies. Israel's strength was never supposed to be in how many horses they had or how many thousands of chariots they could put into the field. Israel had been told repeatedly, your strength is in the Lord. Deuteronomy 20 verse 1, when you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So what is David thinking about in including chariots of God in this reference? Verse 17. Well, perhaps David simply meant it, meant it metaphorically. In those days chariots were a symbol of an army's strength. And so he's saying, well, God's hand is as powerful as thousands of chariots, and God can protect his people in every attack against them. Something David, as a man of war, knew very well. But it's more than that. It's not just a metaphor. David is a prophet here. David is anticipating with Old Testament eyes the day when God will vanquish all of his enemies. Maybe the Holy Spirit was giving David a a sense of how that would happen. Maybe he was giving him an idea of what was coming, if what happened a few generations after this. You remember the story of Elisha? Remember that? Here's Elisha. The enemies of God's people, the Syrians, are so angry because Elisha always tells the king of Israel where the Syrian army is going. And so they can never meet the Israelites in battle. It's frustrating to them. And so they say, why is it? Well, it's because of that prophet Elisha. And so the Syrian king sends his army to go capture Elisha. 2 Kings chapter 6. And Elisha's servant goes outside and he looks around the city and he's just overwhelmed. The horses and chariots of Syria have surrounded the city and he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Boys and girls, you remember what Elisha said? You remember what he said? Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed to the Lord that God would open the eyes of Elisha's servants, and he did. And then it says, And behold, look, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Even more than that. Think of David's greater son, Jesus. Did we ever see him ride on a chariot? No. We saw him ride on the colt of a donkey. There's no vast army around him, it was just 12 disciples. The crowds, of course, were singing their hosannas to welcome Jesus, but that night, he left the city as if the triumphal entry had almost never happened expectations did not match reality. Certainly if Jesus wanted to, he could have opened the eyes of all the people there to see the heavenly hosts. He could have entered Jerusalem and conquered it there and overthrown the Romans and made life happily ever after from there. The chariots of the Lord and the heavenly host were certainly at his command. But he did not enter the city that way. He came in meekness. He came to suffer. He came to die so that he could claim victory. So that on the cross, in utter shame, foolishness in the eyes of the world, he crushed the head of his enemy. And when he rose on the third day from the dead, he rose victorious. And 40 days after that, his own disciples saw him ascend into heaven the same way, just like Elijah did, in the chariot of fire. But they saw Jesus Christ far greater going up to this holy place of heaven. And then Revelation chapter 5 tells us how he was received into that heaven. Every creature singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb comes to his throne. The glory of God ascends into the sanctuary. And so here in verse 17, David is looking by faith to Jesus in his ascended glory. Having died on the cross, having been raised in victory, and now he stands in heaven surrounded by all of his majesty and power. And what does Jesus do there? What does David see Jesus doing? He sees Jesus making sure that his people are following him. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. I hope you know that this verse is quoted in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. It's a verse that focuses on the king. Christ, he's ascended, now he's holding an audience. And all the nations of the world, all those whom he has claimed as his own, are bringing gifts to him. He lead a, leads a host of captives, those he has conquered. Other translation says he leads captivity captive. They would, that's what kings would do at that time. They would take the, the captives that they had conquered and lead them as part of that parade. Say, look at how great I am. I have conquered this person. That even the rebellious against me now have to confess that I am king. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue has to confess. What's interesting is that when this verse, verse 18, is quoted in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, flips the emphasis of verse 18 around... Of course, the highlight is still that Jesus has ascended, he is the king, but it says that in arriving there, we who are those captives, we who have been claimed by Christ as his own, doesn't describe us as slaves, describes us as those who once were slaves but have now been set free. And more than that, in Ephesians 4, it's not Jesus receiving the gifts of the nations It's now Jesus as king pouring out those gifts to his church in his gracious measure as he calls each one of us. Ephesians 4 says that if we belong to the Lord and the Lord dwells among us, then we are partakers of all of the blessings of his victory. And Actually, Psalm 68 anticipates that too. It's not like Paul was twisting something that wasn't there. If you go all the way to verse 24, it talks about this procession. Verse 24, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain, there is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. This, this is one of those instances where as a preacher you realize there's so much here, that more that I can cover in a sermon. But this is just fascinating, what this means for that procession, that parade. If you have your Bibles before you, would you turn with me to Numbers chapter 10? Numbers chapter 10. In the first part of that chapter, God tells Moses to make two silver trumpets So that when they're blown a certain way, a certain melody, that tells the camp of the Israelites to begin marching out. They're in the middle of the wilderness. And especially when they need to prepare to march out to war against the enemies who are attacking them. What comes next, starting in verse 11, is a description of the military formation. Of how Israel, the army, the great host, was supposed to march out to battle. And then you skip all the way ahead to verse 35. It says, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. It's interesting. Here we have this military formation. Judah was to take the lead. But each of the tribes was given their place within that military formation. At the rear is Dan, along with Asher and Naphtali, an order through which they marched into the wilderness. Just like it says in verse 27, there is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. They're all there. And what is the result of them being there? Verse 35, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Now turn back to Psalm 68, verse 1. Verse 1. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. It's almost word for word. The same as Numbers 10, verse 35. Now go back to Psalm 68, verse 27. There's little, ben, little Benjamin, the least of them in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun. The princes of Naphtali. David is describing Numbers chapter 10. He is describing how this great host of God's covenant people who once were led through the wilderness, led by the glory cloud of the Lord, are still on a journey. They're still in the wilderness, they're still on their way, even as the New Testament describes us as exiles, as sojourners, as those who are not yet home. And yet here he's anticipating the day when even the least of God's people, Benjamin, us Gentiles... He's anticipating the day when even the least of them will join that heavenly host. And finally that wilderness journeying will come to its end. And every single one who belongs there, even the least of them, will be counted among their number. They're all there. They're all there. we look at this parade and yes we look at the king we look at Jesus we look at all of his glory but look at what follows him there behind him is a redeemed church all named all with their place in church history all with the reflection of the glory of God as he brings salvation to bear upon their lives all known by the Lord all set in military possession in order by the Lord all loved by the Lord all enjoyed by the Lord, all set in honor before the eyes of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have our place in that march. There's Jesus. He's leading us. He's going on before us. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first to enter glory. He's carrying our redemption with him, as Psalm 68 says. Numbers 10 foreshadowed our enemies scattered by the Lord. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered because there is even little Benjamin, little you and me, following Jesus into glory. If we know that we belong to that processional, Psalm 68 gives us a song to sing, which we see briefly in the third place, the God of salvation. Verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Blessed be the Lord, it says. How familiar are you with that phrase from the Psalms? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why is David so joyful? Blessed is the Lord who daily bears us up. He carries us. He keeps us. He sustains us. Think of the context of this. It's a march heading off to glory. Do you want to divert from that path? Do you want to find an alternate route, a detour to get there? No, we don't. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. If we look at ourselves and we say, how faithful have I been to walk that straight and narrow path? I haven't. Who am I to expect a place? I'm even less than little Benjamin. I'm a sinner. I've forsaken Christ. I've turned my heart away from Him. I have not walked in formation with Him. And yet the song of the redeemed is not I have carried myself to glory. It is not I have found the path that I have needed to take Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. I can't carry myself, but Christ carries me. My confidence to see that glorious day is not in what I have done or who I am, but it is in Christ my Savior. It is in my King. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, that will be the story that we tell to whoever's walking beside us on the way to the new Jerusalem. Look at what Christ has done for me. Look at what grace has done for me. Let me sing my song with you. And our partner will sing the same song with us. This is the God of our salvation. If God has us in his heart, if he has his church in his heart, he will not allow us to veer from that path of salvation, that path of glory. He will make sure that we never reach a dead end. There is no obstacle too great to stand in the way of where we will see Christ in his glory that's the point of verse 20. Our God is a God of salvation, not of false promises. Our God is a God of salvation. He br- brings deliverance from death. He's not a king who promises the world and fails to deliver. Not even death will be a barrier to that. Remember those saints who have gone before us, their souls having a taste of glory that we cannot yet see. On that day of judgment, that day when Christ calls us, we will stand beside them and we will look at each other and we will say, Christ is our deliverer. Death cannot hold us. These verses are such a joyful song because we look upon Christ who has carried us all the way to the cross, carried our sins as his own, carried us even into the tomb, carries us with him into glory. We walk then by faith, brothers and sisters, along that narrow path. But we know where that path is going. Onward then. Onward to the glory we have yet to see. Onward then for the sacrifice that has been made for us in Jesus Christ. Onward to the victory that He has claimed for us. What a parade that will be. What a beautiful host of believers. And what a king to follow. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, that this Word has lifted our eyes. You've shown us our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have shown us His love, His steadfastness, His power, and You have shown us the church. Not as the world sees it, foolish, weak, of no significance, but as you see it, loved, treasured, redeemed, carried. And We pray then, Heavenly Father, that with the eyes of faith we would continually look ahead to that day when we will see His glory. And Lord, our hearts sing with joy and anticipation of when we will stand beside the saints who have gone before us and we will sing exactly the same song because we have exactly the same salvation. Lord, we pray that our hearts already today humbled by your glory, humbled by our need, would yet see even the least of us called to join that procession in honor. Lord, this is all of your grace, and our hearts rejoice to sing to our God of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.